I think it's very sad. Um, I think our legislative leaders have given up on governance. For me, that's epitomized by a remark made by Mitch McConnell, who said, winners make policy, losers go home. And that is, from my point of view, the antithesis of what democratic practice ought to be. My view would be that winners guide the policymaking decision and incorporate losers into that process. And those are two fundamentally different views about what is required of governance. So I do think that the current approach, as articulated by McConnell, is destructive, actually. is actually destructive of the foundations of democratic practice. Hi, you're listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mensch. In this podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange of views on political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of the school's speaker series, which invites both liberal progressives and conservative voices that we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. Before we get going with today's interview, a few housekeeping notes. The plan going forward is to release new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. If you don't see a new episode on exactly those days, fear not, it will drop within a day or so. Count on two episodes a month from here through mid-August. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do us a favor, tell your friends about it, and leave us a review. Positive reviews allow new people to find us and helps grow the audience. Okay, enough of that. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Danielle Allen. She is the director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. She's an American classicist and political scientist. She is the author of From Voice to Influence, Understanding Citizenship in a Digital Age, as well as most recently, Cuz, The Life and Times of Michael A. The conversation starts off broad with the question of liberty and equality. Are they always in tension with each other? Helen has seemingly endless practical knowledge of how to reform American politics for the better. In the interview, we address the detrimental effects of shielding young people from opposing viewpoints and whether inequality of wealth is best approached by redistribution or what she calls pre-distribution. And we also address the age-old question of how do you get more people involved in the political process. This might be the most exciting part of the interview. I throw out a wild idea that she bemusingly entertains. At least briefly, anyway. I think you'll really enjoy it. Danielle Allen. One of the things I really see as interesting in your work is this idea that we as Americans recognize this tension between liberty as a grand concept and equality as a grand concept. And you make an argument that these two things aren't as much in tension as we tend to think they are. And as Americans, we tend to choose liberty over equality. Yes, liberty and equality were concepts that in the 18th century people recognized as working together hand in glove. If you desire to protect the liberty of citizens, and seek liberty for all. You can achieve that only if everybody has freedom from domination by other citizens and freedom from domination by external enemies or adversaries. And achieving that internal freedom from domination requires pursuing political equality and social equality and establishing a context in which everybody equally participates in shaping the collective rules of the game, the laws, the legal structure, and so forth. So you need equality, particularly political equality and social equality, in order to protect freedom. That was the very conventional view of the 
18th century, the 19th and 20th century, and particularly the battle between communism on the one hand and capitalism on the other, changed people's understanding of equality, limited it to a conception of economic equality. And that led to the view that liberty and equality were in tension with each other, which I think leads us now into a lot of misguided decision-making. Americans do tend to split into prioritizing liberty over equality or vice versa. Instead, I think we need to rebuild recognition of how the two ideals belong together and are mutually reinforcing. It's really interesting to think about because I used to not think of it as being intention myself back in the days where I used to think of myself as kind of a radical leftist. But actually, the more my education advanced, the more I did understand why people thought about it this way. When you say one of the things we need to do is get everybody involved, and I think actually one of the lines I took from your piece is that it's not the most important thing to have everybody do everything. It's more that they participate in the structure to the best of their abilities or that everybody participate well. It's hard for me to envision how that's possible. Well, I think the goal of building the institutions of a democracy or republic is precisely to develop possibilities for self-government. And that's the goal of self-government is to ensure that everybody can contribute as a decision maker to our collective decision making. There's lots to be said about that, why this country chose representation as the mode for doing that. But I want to back up for a minute, actually, and reflect for a moment on your own changing understandings and why you had a moment where you saw them as together, equality and liberty, and then came to see them as separate. And I think the most important thing there is that equality is a big, rich concept. We infrequently take the time to parse it into its different kinds. So you have to recognize the difference between a basic concept of moral equality, the notion that all human beings are members of the same species and are of fundamentally the same moral worth. People do different things with the life they're given to lead and may live well or may live badly, but nonetheless, there's a human essence that's valuable in itself, which we respect in human rights frameworks, recognize that basic human moral equality. Then you have political equality. That's what you're now asking about, the notion that every human being is the author of their own life course and that human flourishing depends on being able to shape one's own life. Shaping one's own life requires also contributing to shaping a community's life. A community sets parameters on what any of us can do, constrains our possibilities. So if one intends to be the author of one's own life, if one seeks and pursues that, then that actually does require participating as a co-creator in shaping the rules of the community. So that's what the concept of political equality is basically about. Then there's, I'm going to go through two more. I'm going to make you listen to them. Yeah, okay. Social equality, right, which is about how citizens relate to each other, whether they can actually establish foundations of fair play and reciprocity amongst themselves. And that's relational, sort of one person to another. And then lastly, there's the issue of economic egalitarianism or equality. And that there, I think there are lots of different ways of thinking about that. I tend to focus on economic egalitarianism, which means prioritizing opportunity and mobility and a general structure of political economy that distributes the benefits of our collective productivity in fair ways across the economy. That's quite different from a principle of strict equality of economic distribution, just to be clear. Now, the point of elaborating all of that, I know it's taken some time, is just to say that when somebody invokes the concept of equality, you always need to know whether they're talking about moral equality, political equality, social equality, or economic equality. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. These are very important distinctions. I think a lot of times they get swept over, though. And that there is a wing of our country's politics, it's certainly not just our own, but, you know, I would say Western politics, if not even broader 
broader that really focuses on a certain kind of radical egalitarianism and that goes across all boundaries that you described, and that is their goal for equality. And I guess I'm curious to hear your opinions on this growth of radical egalitarianism that certainly is popular throughout academe. Well, again, I think there are a lot of different versions of egalitarianism. So I think there are some versions which focus on the issue of participation and really empowering people broadly to be active citizens, to participate in political institutions and decision making. I think that's an extremely good thing. That's back to your question about self-government. How can people of different backgrounds, different experiences, different forms of expertise all contribute? And the answer is we have a structure of decision making with lots of room for people to contribute their voices, their particular bodies of expertise. Everybody ends up contributing something different. It's the fact of the contribution that gives the equal opportunity for sharing and co-creation. So I think that's terrific. I'm sort of fully supportive of the efforts to increase degrees of participation and that kind of egalitarianism. With regard to economic questions, I think the important thing there is to build an economy whose engines of which are egalitarian in the sense of broadly supporting a flourishing middle class. We don't have that kind of economy right now. We have an economy that drives massive disparities of income and wealth and increasing distances between those at the top and those at the bottom. So I think our economy does need attention and does need directing in a more egalitarian way. That's different from taking the view that the solution is a purely sort of a distributive policies, you know, where you let the economy move in its inegalitarian direction, but continually collect and redistribute the goods of that. I don't think that's the best approach to rebuilding an egalitarian economy. I think a better approach focuses on how we think about issues of housing, transportation, sort of land and labor, the components of the actual productive economy. I think those things could be organized in ways that have much more egalitarian downstream outputs than what we currently have. What do you mean by downstream outputs? Again, there's sort of two models. You have the question of, is how your economy produces things, does that generate an egalitarian distribution of the results? That's the ideal. We don't have that currently. We have an economy that produces an inegalitarian distribution of the benefits of productivity. And then we, in a modest way, use taxes to redistribute that. And then some people argue we should use taxes more aggressively to redistribute that. But they're comfortable with the basic functioning of the economy in this inegalitarian direction. So there's a political scientist at Yale named Jacob Hacker, for example, who uses the vocabulary pre-distribution to talk about the difference. If you pay attention to whether or not housing supports economic mobility, for example, you change the basic dynamics of the economy. Currently, lots of people are locked out by housing of the ability to move to places where there is economic opportunity. That's just one example. But you look at the basic pieces of production that factor into how the economy operates in the first place, whether or not opportunity is circulating, whether or not it's generating mobility. And that's where we can make adjustments such that the actual gains from productivity already in the first place flow in a fairer direction across the population and sustain a middle class. That's, I think, the preferable path. Right. If there's too much redistribution and too much tinkering with the system itself, then especially on the level that I think some people would prefer, I don't know if we're necessarily discussing something that would be more aggressive than social democracy that you see in Western Europe, or if we're talking about something entirely different. But if it were to be on a level stronger than what you see in Western Europe, when does it get to the point where it's out of the realm of liberalism itself? Or is that even necessarily a concern? So I'm exactly not arguing for that. Okay. Right? That's the distributive model. And I was arguing for focusing on the actual components of the productive economy, land, labor, how those things are organized. So my suggestion is if you pay attention to housing, if you pay attention to things like transportation, if you pay attention to things like infrastructure, the productive economy in itself will generate a more egalitarian result in terms of how income flows to different people. You won't need to redistribute 
execute in the same way because the gains from productivity will themselves already in the process of the functioning of the economy be flowing in more egalitarian directions. Well, give me an idea, and I guess our listeners an idea of specific types of policies that might engender those types of things. Well, I'll come back to housing again. I mean, so basically in the last recession, the 2008 recession, one of the most striking things about it is that over the course of American history, most recessions have resolved in part because people moved from places where there wasn't opportunity to places where there was opportunity. In this last recession, people were locked into where they live. They couldn't move because of mortgages that were underwater or because the places with opportunity have housing costs that are just out of the league of the people who needed opportunities. So the entire economy did not have an engine to help resolve the recession because of our housing situation. So there was a dearth of transiency. There was a dearth and, of and mobility. And I meant that in a positive way. Dearth of yeah, mobility. mobility would be yeah. the word. I mean, the American economy has depended on high rates of mobility for its entire history. Mobility is at its lowest rate right now in American history. Yeah, I heard that recently. It's kind of shocking. The reason for that is because of how we approach housing. Some of that's about zoning, which limits high-density construction. Some of that is about how we support or don't various kinds of development and things like that. To some extent, it's about subsidized housing. It's a mix of all of those policies. You can see cities like Minneapolis that are experimenting with different kinds of housing policies. And this is the sort of experimentation that we need across the board, or Houston is another place with good experiment in this regard. And if the entire country were doing a better job of unlocking people from the housing traps they find themselves in, we'd have a higher degree of mobility. We'd have better connecting of people to opportunities. That would be a source of productivity growth and general growth for the economy. So that's an example of a kind of policy that would have egalitarian downstream effects, by which I mean the actual income flows coming out of production would already go back into pockets in a more equitable way. You wouldn't need redistribution to start rebalancing things things that are inequitable. It's on the front end. And, and, right. and this is just one of many things, a multifaceted plan, but it still needs to be done by some kind of very well-informed and hopefully not counterproductive bureaucracy, right? No, I mean, I think one of our problems is we suffer from excessive power in the hands of technocrats. That doesn't mean that you don't need expertise in the policymaking space. You do, but you need the expertise to be really deployed at the direction of legislators, whether at the level of states or Congress. I think economic policymaking has been too removed from from ordinary experience, from consideration of the consequences for specific communities of large-scale economic policies. But I mean, how do we get people to participate? It seems to me, and I could be wrong, and I'm sure you're more familiar with all of the specific data points than I am, but it seems to me that participation in local elections and even just interest in local politics has to be going down. And I find this to be one of the really weird and fascinating things about the way things have evolved over the last 30 years or so, is that everyone is so focused on things like the presidency, without really understanding that the president in the United States really does not have a great deal of power, arguably compared to the average prime minister or chancellor. But yet this is what gets everyone's attention, whereas there's so little attention to running for sheriff, which you don't need that much money to actually run for sheriff. You only maybe need, in a lot of places, maybe $25,000. I mean, that's a reasonable sum that people could probably gather from a few hundred friends or something, or running for community council, obviously. All these things, these don't get the level of attention that they deserve. And 
you're certainly aware of the fact that we have more of those little small levels of electoral power in this country than probably any other country in the world by maybe multiples, right? I mean, even on the left, which tends to be thought of as emphasizing this sort of thing, you don't hear as much talk about this. Do you have any ideas about how to get people to turn their attention so that they are participating? I think there's a lot to be said there. Healthy democracies depend on a virtuous circle where healthy and effective political institutions reinforce a sound political culture and vice versa. What I mean by that is in order to participate, it has to be worth your while. So institutions have to function well in order to make anybody's participation worth the investment of time and energy and frustration. On the other hand, institutions can function well only if people bring to them healthy democratic norms of practice. So those are norms of um, forbearance is one. So recognizing that your political adversary is not your mortal enemy, but there are limits to how far you'll take the competition. There will be grounds for compromise that if you lose this time, you accept your loss, but the, the conversation continues and there's no permanent victor, no permanent loser, etc. So all of those norms are part of what make institutions work. I think we're at a moment where we actually have to rebuild both those kinds of norms in our political culture and also reform our institutions so that they are worth people's time. So very basic way, I mean, this is Congress, but I think it has an effect all the way downstream. I think that we ought to switch to an electoral structure for Congress that involves multi-member districts and ranked choice voting, um, as well as independent redistricting commissions to support that. So um, getting Multi-member past gerrymandering. districts, I'm not totally familiar with that. So what that means is, so right now, every congressional district has one member of Congress. That's the result of a law that was passed in the 1960s. So this is a legislative matter, not a constitutional matter. But basically, it used to be possible for you to have a, a larger district. So imagine, you know, Arizona District 1 and 2 in one district, and then they would have two representatives for that single constituency. So the How whole, would they split up the votes, though? You would use ranked choice voting. So the first winner, the first person past the 50% post gets the first seat, then the next person gets the next seat. But what this would mean if you restructured the voting mechanism across the country this way, every district would have competitive elections, and most districts would have one party and a second member from another party all representing the same district, so they would be obliged to work together on behalf of their constituents. And so you'd have um, a oh, structure. that's very interesting. So there's almost compromise built into the structure itself, or at least hopefully there is. People would have to learn how to work together again across party lines, exactly. And also an election system of this kind would force politicians to speak to all the voters as opposed to just speaking to their base um, oh, interesting. in that district. Yeah. What do you think of the German model for the Reichstag, where they have a vote for the district itself, and then they also have a separate vote for the party, and then they don't even have a fixed number of seats within the Reichstag, right? So that to get the math to work, because it's a proportional representative system, where anything above 4%, you keep any representatives you win outright. But then you also, if you get above 4%, you get at least that number. Do you so, see that as something that is even remotely feasible in the American system, or is this too alien to everything that we do? I mean, the original structure was designed with a view to filtering the broad diversity of opinion in the American population. So the goal was that representatives would both sort of gather that broad opinion, but then also be a mediating, moderating, filtering function for it. And so I continue to think that that was a wise form of design. And so the combination of multi-member and ranked choice does a better job of pulling the diversity of opinion into the representative body, but it makes the threshold higher for collections of opinion to really register at that level. And I think actually at this particular moment in time, 
where the world of internet and social media has made it much easier for outlying fringe positions to coalesce and consolidate makes it all the more important, actually, to protect the filtering mechanism in the structure of representation. Interesting. Does it work against gerrymandering and all? Or is that a concern of a program Mm -hmm. like that? Well, the third piece of the reform I mentioned, the independent redistricting commissions, would work against gerrymandering. So California is a good example here where they now have a body of 14 citizen commissioners who are responsible for drawing districts. And this applies for Congress, but also for the districts in the state assembly and so forth, so all the way down. So these kinds of reforms can improve participation at every level. So that's the point that you can do these same kinds of reforms at the other levels. And in all cases, they ought to draw out participation. They have where they've been used. So in the California case, they have about 30,000 citizens who apply to be commissioners to draw the districts. And then there is a kind of selection process and interview process by the state assembly that generates these commissioners. So Schwarzenegger was governor of California at the time that they brought this in. And his very pithy way of explaining what it meant is you can either have the politicians choose the voters, which is what happens now, or you can have the voters choose the politicians, which is what you get through independent redistricting commissions. He was excellent at those pithy little you know, things. That's you know, true. He really was. Yep. I mean, many failings, yep. perhaps, but not at <laughs> not his at rhetoric. That, exactly, you know? yeah. Yeah. I guess I still have some concerns, though, even in a system like that, that it would still end up not quite being participatory in a way that we would like in the sense of, and I don't want to project onto you desires that aren't yours, but I mean, maybe in a Tocquevillian way where people are actually directly participating on the community level in an enthusiastic and very active way in their governance. It's not that all the ideas that you didn't lay out are fantastic and could have a wonderful effect, but is even that enough? Don't we maybe even need some kind of democratic restructuring that might be even more pointed at the community level? Well, what I'm suggesting actually is that if we could restructure um, the big architecture of our institutions, that would actually drive change in our political culture. If elections were worth participating in at those upper levels, state and Congress, I think what you do is you get more people participating, then I think that is an educative experience and process for people. And that has positive effects on the local level. So I agree with you about the value of local participation and local engagement. But I think the way you get that is that you need a whole system where there are positive incentive structures for participation. So that's what I think of those reforms as being, as kind of designing incentive structures that make learning how to participate, um, remembering to participate, sort of worthwhile in the first place. And I believe those aren't going to stay confined just to federal elections or whatever. Those energies and those learnings will flow into the local space as well. So I have kind of a wild idea that a student of mine came up with. Well, it's kind of like a conversation between me and a student. Just literally the other day, he was in my office, that you would raise the voting age. So I know a lot of people actually want to lower it, but we would raise it in a certain way, but lower it in another way. So we would make voting only somewhat applicable, but as early as age 14. So you could vote for your community level council at age 14. And then at 16, it would increase to, I don't know, city council, okay? And then 18, Congress, then 20, Senate, some kind of model like this. So that we would build up 
a certain level of engagement and encourage people to understand politics on a local level from a very young age and then kind of also make them realize that it's a privilege. Is this a ridiculous idea or are we on to something? Well, I have sometimes, particularly if I'm talking to audiences of college students, argue that we should raise the voting age with my reason for arguing that to provoke them into engagement. Right. In other words, because if they don't vote, then the rest of us are going to raise the voting age on them. So Sure. So I that would be my take on that issue. So I'm going to take away from that that it's probably wild. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think if you put that idea out there, it would in itself drive participation because people would want to protect the right to vote. Well, that's kind so, of, I mean, yeah, so even just putting one the way idea or another, there, right. I mean, yeah. but the idea behind it is more just to incentivize people from a very young age to understand politics as a local enterprise. Yep. And then to realize that it is a privilege that also needs to be built up through maturity and education. That's the concept. Right. Well, in, in my brief defense of it. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the things I read in your work was this notion that, that I'm quoting from you here, that disagreement, resentment, disappointment, these are all products of political loss. Okay, obviously there are things that happen in our personal life, but there are things that happen in our political life also. And when I read that in your work, I was kind of disturbed because I feel like both sides of the aisle, if not every side of the political spectrum today, that's almost their primary goal <laughs> is to induce disagreement, resentment, and disappointment into their opponents, almost rather than doing something productive. And I wonder if you see something similar. I do. I think it's very sad. Um, I think our legislative leaders have given up on governance. For me, that's epitomized by a remark made by Mitch McConnell, who said, winners make policy, losers go home. And that is, from my point of view, the antithesis of what democratic practice ought to be. My view would be that winners guide the policymaking decision and incorporate losers into that process. And those are two fundamentally different views about what is required of governance. So I do think that the current approach, as articulated by McConnell, is destructive, actually. is actually destructive of the foundations of democratic practice. I see it also, though, from not just directly in the electoral politics itself, but just even online and in social media and in academe also, where there's just this desire to really just kind of poke your finger in the eye of the people you dislike, the groups you dislike. And there's so much of almost this ritualistic beating of the pinata of the other side. And I find it really troubling. And I think one of the things that you point out in your work is you can't have any kind of productive communication in this goes for any kind of communication, but in your context, you're talking about politics without trust. And I feel like this is a key component of how trust is broken down if you're just constantly trying to mm -hmm. razz your opponents. No, I think it's a huge problem. And again, I come back to this word governance. I think we've lost knowledge of the existence of this activity. And this is the activity in which competing sides, in fact, at some level work together to achieve an outcome. And U.S. history is full of that kind of bipartisan work. So the U.S. Civil Rights Act in 1964 is an example of that Reagan's Tax Reform Act was another incredible bipartisan achievement. There was amazing bipartisan immigration reform in the early 1990s. So it's something we used to know how to do and we used to believe in. And the problem here is that at the end of the day, democracy can survive if and only if those who lose out in any particular election or moment have a reason to remain committed to the endeavor. And which means everybody actually has to prioritize 
union, just kind of quoting Lincoln, there has to prioritize keeping the thing whole over total victory. Because if your priority is total victory, then the other side has no reason to continue playing, period. And that is the recipe for the breakup of democratic societies. It just is. Like over the course of history, like that's the recipe for the breakup of democratic societies. So, yeah, we should all be relearning forbearance, not razzing our enemies, recognizing that there's a difference between contestation and total victory. You don't need total victory. You need hearty, significant contestation, but then the capacity to be the winner who leads a policymaking process that incorporates the losers. So I'm quoting from you again. Uh Uh-oh. Speech is a crucial tool of trust production. So in this... How has speech gotten away from us? And especially you've seen a big turn, and this happens, I think, with the new left towards rhetoric and speech. And I think a large part of even just PC culture, for lack of a better term, is this desire to control and maybe even some people would argue police language. How is this useful for trust production or is it not useful? I mean, I think you ask a question that has a lot of questions in it. So let me try to pull some of those questions apart. One is the question of the role of the speech of leaders in establishing our culture and our values. How we have lost that, I don't know, but lost it we have. Second question you're asking is about how we ordinarily use speech amongst ourselves to forge social bonds. And there, I think we have a lot of challenges around freedom of speech issues or speech control issues and things like that, that I think we get the wrong way around. So for example, democracies need to defend freedom of speech. Absolutely. And you can't police people's speech. At the same time, the right to speak as one pleases, to say what one wants, is not a right for others not to be offended. Mm-hmm. Sure. All right. So everybody's got a right to take offense, just as people have a right to speak as they wish. And so as a matter of our ethics with one another, we do have a responsibility to take when we are or are not offensive to other people. Now, to say that doesn't mean that the person who's offended has a right by rulemaking to change my speech, but they absolutely have a right to say they find something offensive. And then it's for the party who spoke offensively to come to his or her own conclusion about whether he or she wishes to prove themselves trustworthy to the person they're speaking to. So in other words, we have rights to speech. We have rights to be offended. We have mutual duties to prove ourselves trustworthy to one another. So the question that I always ask to people is, how can you say what you want to say in ways that also prove yourself trustworthy to your fellow citizens? That's Hmm. your job. Interesting. Haven't we, though, and I don't just mean people on the, the left, become much more sensitive and easily offended? And the idea that when somebody offends our pre-existing beliefs or even self-conceptions, that this is like the worst possible thing that could happen on that day, rather than just seeing it as, oh, this is a disagreement that maybe we could work through, rather than making this horrible assumption about the person who's offended us and this desire to get them fired or ostracized. 
I think everybody does need to dial it back. For me, I think it's a reasonable thing to register that you find something offensive. It's a reasonable thing to register that there's an ethical issue the other person needs to address. And then from my point of view, you leave it at that. It's their ethical issue to address. Let's go see how they address it. We can pay attention over time and everybody's got a right to speak. I've got a right to make my judgments about whether or not people have addressed the relevant ethical issues appropriately. But that keeps at the level of dialogue about what our expectations of one another can be rather than turning it into a matter of institutional protocols. I'm going to quote you again. Uh-oh. That's always <laughs> you know, puts me on dangerous territory. No, this is good. That's, it means, that, I mean, I'm trying to pin down your thoughts on these specific areas. But you say somewhere in your work that speech is one of the most critical tools, the ability to articulate yourself of empowerment. And, I, and when you said this, at least the way I remember it in your work, it wasn't empowerment of a personal nature. I think the way I remember reading it was a larger political, if not even I meant economic. Okay. Yeah, I think I meant both things. Human beings are incredible creatures, incredible animals, incredible beings. And as it happens, we have the capacity to choose our directions, to choose the ideals or values that give our lives meaning and shape our paths. And when we make individual choices, that's the case, whether we're self-conscious about it or not, our choices are guided by our values. The same is true in our collective life, when as a society we choose to support healthcare or not support healthcare, or to think about immigration this way or that way. At the end of the day, our starting point for those decisions is inevitably a set of values. Now, we learn our values, we change them, we can reflect on them only through speech. There is no other instrument for delivering change or adjustment to our values than speech, which means if all decision-making flows ultimately from our values, then those who speak effectively and can engage people in clarifying their values, choosing new directions, and so forth, have the most power and influence really over our social directions. I think of Martin Luther King as an example in effect, the sort of prophetic nature of his speech, what he did in speeches like the I Have the Dream speech and so forth, was teach an entire country how to reconceive of its values. That's the kind of power I'm pointing to when I focus on that capacity of speech. Sure, and he did it in a uniquely American way, right? I mean, he essentially held up a mirror to America and said, you're not reaching your own supposedly professed values. Going with this a little bit more, if speech is our primary tool of empowerment, which I certainly would agree with you that it is, aren't we really hamstringing ourselves, though? And I mean this of all political varieties. If we can't debate actively and, be, and vigorously with other people, because in my view, and I'm certainly I want to hear your response to this, how you become as articulate as someone like King is to be constantly embroiled in a process of having to defend your values actively to other people. It sharpens the knife. And you learn also the holes in your own argument. You learn what your opponents think. Whereas if you shut down debate, which maybe it's finally crested this desire to deplatform people and to shut down certain viewpoints on campuses, maybe that's finally hit its high point, but it certainly hasn't gone away. This seems entirely contra the empowerment that I think we're both in agreement happens yeah. through speech. Yes, speech and debate are 
things one practices, one needs to learn the skills for. I mean, I think there are any number of kinds of ways of doing this. I think debate's very valuable. I also think gathering groups who have different starting points in a kind of problem-solving space around a particular issue, something that requires a concrete solution, is a good thing. And engaging people in clarifying which values they bring to the table, figuring out whether or not there are overlapping points among those. In other words, what I'm saying is some of the work of learning how to use speech is about debate and is about kind of adversarial structures. But some of the work of learning how to use speech is about hearing, listening, hearing across a diversity of viewpoints where there's actually overlap, being able to identify that, lift it up, express it, and then help people coalesce around that and build from that. So there are a number of different kinds of skill sets that are relevant to using speech to empower individuals and communities. Mm, Absolutely. So you write about Athens and systems of punishment in Athens and other places. And as I was going through your work on Athens and thinking about the Athenian assembly and how punishment used to be dished out in a private way rather than a public way, I was honestly shocked by some of these things. I really hadn't thought about the fact that so often in the past, if not more often, most punishments were not taken care of by the state in an official, bureaucratic, impartial capacity. I mean, this is something we just take for granted in our contemporary world. And it was interesting to read in your work, and I might be misunderstanding you, but maybe there are positive elements, at least some, to taking punishment in a private realm rather than a public realm. Or maybe I just completely misread everything that you were... Right. Don't think I meant to argue that, actually. Then let's talk about what is the best way to handle punishment. Historically, in the 20th century, there have been a few different paradigms for thinking about punishment. Retributive paradigms, deterrent paradigms, rehabilitative paradigms, and restorative paradigms. Now, from my point of view, the best is that last category, restorative approaches to punishment. What that means is that you see the purpose of punishment is to make the entire community whole. It means making the victim whole. It also means achieving wholeness for the wrongdoer through social integration, meaningful social reintegration. And it means making the community whole in the sense of repairing the the wrong done from the wrongdoing, but also building a healthier community that has over time less wrongdoing than where you started. So what does that actually mean? That was all very abstract A key way of getting at that meaning would be to contrast U.S. approaches to punishment to punishment in, say, Germany and the Netherlands, where the most striking difference is that in the U.S., we use incarceration for 70% of our penalties, our sanctions. In Germany, the percentage of sanctions that are incarceration is 6%. And in the Netherlands, it's 8%. So they have built their systems of punishment around what they call a principle of association, which is this idea that our goal is the sort of social whole building on social relationships. So yes, the victim needs restitution, needs response. But at the same time, what the wrongdoer really needs is repair of their ability to participate in social relations. And the point that they make in thinking about their penal systems is that incarceration is exactly the worst thing that you can do if what you want to do is make sure that a wrongdoer improves their ability to function in society. So that's why they keep incarceration to a minimum. And they put a lot of effort into various programs that are sort of work-related, where the person lives under, in a sort of halfway house, under a kind of surveillance structure at night, but goes out to work during the day or does apprenticeship and training programs. 
sort of a slew of these things that are more individually tailored to achieve that social reintegration. And I think that is a much healthier model for punishment than what we have in this and, country. And do you think something like that can work in a country like this? Absolutely. There's no reason it can't work. It's just a lack of imagination on our part. So, I mean, I think if you tell people we can punish without prisons, we can proceed by reducing rates of incarceration, it makes people's minds draw a blank. Like they can't imagine a world like that. But all you have to do is buy a plane ticket. You know, it's not a utopia. You can just like buy a plane but ticket it, but isn't and go there, see it. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, isn't the culture of the Netherlands and the culture of Germany, aren't these quite different than ours? Aren't there fundamental differences? Fundamental, I don't know about. I mean, sure, there are different countries, absolutely. But even within Europe, there's a sort of diversity of approaches to punishment. And they taught themselves this approach to punishment. It's not as if just sort of an er feature of their culture or something like that. It was... Well, how long have they been experimenting with it? About I mean, 20 years. Of, okay. Yeah. No, I mean, so it was sort of intentionally adopted principle and they rethought their systems of punishment around this principle and there's no reason we don't have the capacity to do the same. And for the people that are inside those countries, what are the critics saying about it? Because every policy has a critic, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a very good question. Taking the Netherlands case, in order to make it work, it requires a lot of collaboration among prosecutors and police chief and sort of social services structures in the city. And so I think at the level of administrative management, there are challenges with the system. It's just it's a, it takes a lot of collaboration kind of consistently over time to succeed at that. So I think there's a sense of burden around that. I think you'd find that. There is also debate over... So what they've done, too, is quite consciously chosen not to build prisons, even in moments when there's perhaps popular push for prisons, on the grounds that if you build them, you will fill them. So better not to build them in order to force yourself into continuing to use all these alternative mechanisms. So like a field so of dreams type thing, except for not of in, dreams. In reverse, yeah. yeah. Or exactly, filled not of dreams. That's maybe. right. Yeah. Those are places where you can see pressure points. In other words, right? So I don't think I can paint you a full portrait of the criticisms, but the pressure points there are around the degree of cooperation and collaboration you need to make it work. And around this question of, is this, you know, really tight control of prison construction the right thing? It's not an issue I'm familiar with enough to really have a strong opinion about it either way. But if I was going to play the role of the devil's advocate of the critics, I think that maybe bringing something like that to the U.S. that we don't necessarily have the kind of mechanisms and bureaucracy and even maybe the people trained or even agencies that know how to train them to implement something like this. I mean, it seems like we're so yeah. far behind this curve. Well, it's we, not we even over the horizon, I we guess. We couldn't do it overnight. I mean, it is over the horizon, actually. And things like the First Step Act that was passed by partisan piece of legislation passed in January already has pieces of this kind of approach in it. So that legislation involves early release for a set of convicted offenders where the early release transitions them to this kind of halfway house structure instead of an incarceration structure. And states like Texas and Rhode Island have been experimenting with things like this. So we actually have a reasonable amount of experimentation in this zone underway in the states. The question is whether we can coalesce the knowledge that's coming out of that and turn it into a kind of comprehensive paradigm change. And yes, you're right. I mean, it would be a very different way of doing things. It would require a huge amount of retraining for everybody who works in the criminal justice system in Germany. For the incarceration component, they also just train the folks who run the prisons in a very different way than we do. I mean, they sort of train them as 
social workers in important ways. There are other critical features. The lengths of sentences is completely disparate. Nobody in the developed world has sentences remotely as long as the ones that we do. And why are ours longer? Because we've had a punitive culture for several decades, and we've had both parties competing to see who can be harder on punishment. And so we have achieved quite extraordinary punishments in the context of the whole history of the world. Where do you think that comes from within our culture? There's lots you could say about that. I mean, it's sort of a culture that has a kind of culture of violence built into our history at a deep level. So, you know, there are lots of people who have lots of different answers to that question. Well, so let's tease this out a little bit further, this specific notion, because in some of your work, you seem like you're advocating for the legalization of not just marijuana, but all drugs. Uh, No, Uh, so I distinguish legalization for marijuana and decriminalization for other drugs, which is an important distinction. Let's talk about the distinction there. Sure, yeah. Well, legalization is what it sounds like. It's legal. It means whatever it is, it's like alcohol, basically. So it's regulated, but it's legal. Decriminalization means you take things down from being felonies to being misdemeanors. So use, simple use and possession of crack, cocaine, heroin, et cetera, would become misdemeanors instead of felonies. So what that does is permit a society to treat substance use disorder as a health issue, not a criminal issue. So, you know, a misdemeanor means you you get the misdemeanor. So it's, you don't have a permanent element on your record. You're not at risk for incarceration. You get directed to health services. And then the resources that we currently direct towards treating, you know, ordinary use and possession as a criminal matter get redirected to targeting high-level traffickers. So the actual sale of all those harder drugs is still illegal, but the you direct the resources to the highest level of trafficking. So why not, though, make them fully legal on some level? Because isn't there still a danger? I'm just playing devil's advocate on this. Isn't there still a danger, though, that a lot of those hard drugs, you're still supporting the drug trade on some level, or at least allowing it to happen? You're not regulating it. You're not getting tax revenue from it. But you're also not necessarily making sure that those harder drugs are clean. They're actually not more dangerous than they could be otherwise if they were regulated. Well, it's, it's basically a kind of public health analysis. So you have to consider all the different trade-offs, right? So in various ways, legalization, ending prohibition would take violence out of our system. Okay, so that's a kind of net benefit. On the other hand, drug use, things like heroin and so forth, are just super dangerous. So you're going to have a lot of death and destruction that would come from that if it were legalized. And ditto for all of those problematic ones. So in some sense, the kind of legalization, criminalization question is one about titrating where the costs fall on something. And so you do want actually to maintain a higher cost on those more dangerous drugs than you do on marijuana. You want to try to reduce use of those drugs. And so the notion is that the combination of a misdemeanor penalty for the actual user is a bit of a deterrent, but what it does is helps the person stay in the realm of health as if when they have to deal with this, but you are continuing to direct resources at the higher level traffickers because at the end of the day, a sort of open spigot on those drugs would be in a net analysis worse than the kind of violence. Yeah, that would seem sort of terrifying to be able to go into the... I don't know, CVS and be like, oh, there's some heroin there. That would be. Yeah, no, I mean, this kind of model has been experimented with. Portugal uses it. It's been endorsed and embraced by a slew of countries in Central and South America, actually, which have been advocating for it and have been blocked at the UN, primarily by Russia, which currently holds the chairmanship of the relevant committee that sets global policy on this front. Hmm, I would have anticipated that. Yep, world's surprising place. Right. <laughs> Indeed. So I want to talk a little bit about interdisciplinarity. 
which used to be a buzzword, right? I mean, it seems to be less of a buzzword now. I think people are using other ones like transdisciplinary and things like this and just kind of pick your brain a little bit about what you think about them. Because for me, I was in an American studies PhD program, have a background in political theory. And I was just shocked being in American studies, which is kind of a wayward discipline at this point that people who used to be the heads of American studies as early as the 90s, early 90s, mid 90s, used to say we should change the name of American studies because we're all so against everything America is about. So it doesn't really necessarily describe the interdiscipline of this field. But when I was there, people literally told me political theory and American studies are oil and water. Hmm. This is literally what I was told. And so here you are in political theory. If it's not the largest part of your background, it certainly seems to be one of the largest. What do you think about this? What do you think of, quote, interdisciplinary fields? And why are they not more interested in political theory? Because I think one of the things that makes your work so unique is that without maybe calling itself interdisciplinary, it is, at least I would say. I mean, I don't know what your feelings are on it. And obviously very grounded and a very high level of knowledge of political theory and the classics, things so-called interdisciplinary fields don't generally take an interest in. Hmm. I'm not sure I can answer your question about the specific fields in the sense I'm not sure I know enough about their internal workings really to answer your question. I'm a sort of omnivorous intellectual or omnivorous academic. So I do think that good academic work typically flows from really solid training in a specific discipline. So I think in American studies, folks tend to be historians, right? Or literary critics, that is to say, they have good understanding of the full range of tools, but still they pick one set of tools to make truly their own, the one that they most passionately embrace. And I think that's a good model. That is, I think the beauty of a university is that each of these different disciplines represents a very specific tool set for tackling hard problems. And the fact is none of the hardest problems can be tackled by any one discipline. So I've always seen the job as being to identify the different disciplines that need to partner together on tackling a hard problem, whether that's political economy and justice, for example, or diversity and democracy or whatnot. I mean, you need historians, you need lawyers, you need philosophers, you need sociologists, you need cultural critics. I've sort of spent my career trying to build partnerships of that kind. So I think that's the do best thing to do. Do you think there's a role for new pairings? Absolutely. I think every problem out there sort of deserves somebody who can kind of take a look at it and see the different kinds of intellectual resources that could be brought to bear on it. So I tend to think building initiatives that are about focusing on big problems, people use that language a lot these days, is a productive way of doing it, that one doesn't need to build a kind of whole department or a whole new kind of transdiscipline or something like that to do that, that you can sort of work out of the core academic disciplines and direct their energies to various sets of big problems in collaborative ways. I know this is probably not a great last question because it's super complicated, but without a background in political theory, can you understand even very large concepts like liberalism, which obviously is reflected in your work, but I don't see reflected in a lot of this interdisciplinary work? Is it even possible to understand something as large as the basic theoretical components of our country. I think it is the case that thinking about democracy requires abstraction. And that is obvious in the sense that if you want to explain a monarchy to somebody, you point to the picture of the king. You say, look, like that guy's in charge. Okay, makes the rules. That's it. Now you understand monarchy. 
try to explain democracy, there's no picture of the people to point to, right? The people who rules in a democracy. So from the get-go, you have to use abstraction to explain what this concept of the people is, how it could possibly have power to govern itself, et cetera. And that becomes quite elaborate. So I think being a democratic citizen is sort of hard work. It actually requires intellectual work. I'm not going to say that you need a specific academic discipline to do that work. I think it's quite possible for people to bootstrap themselves into that understanding. But I do think that political theory provides a shortcut to that understanding. So in that regard, I think it's extremely valuable. That was a very good answer. It was a very good short last answer. I, right. could, I couldn't have done that. So. Oh, well. You, okay. well <laughs> I, you, you asked me lots of questions I couldn't right, have asked. Right, right. So it's all, you know, we all have our thing. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's really sure. been a pleasure familiarizing myself with your work. Well, and thank obviously, you for doing that. Yeah, so. And talking to you. Pleasure as well. Thank you, Duncan. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Mensch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.